0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back. A wise woman once said, All history and every age exhibit instances of patriotic virtue in the female sex, which, considering our situation, equals the most heroic of yours. This wise maiden is, of course, the infamous First Lady Abigail Smith Adams. Much has been written about the independent founding mother, and for good reason. She was ahead of the curve on many issues, and while not a perfect person, she was a feminist for her time. So this week, I'm going to dive into some of the interesting tidbits of one Abigail Adams. Grab your cup of coffee, peeps. Let's do this. Abigail was born on November 11, 1744, in Weymouth, Massachusetts, and was one of four children, Her mother, Elizabeth, was a member of the politically important Quincy family, and her father was a liberal preacher who focused more on morality than original sin. As a girl, and a sickly one at that, Abigail did not get the opportunity to receive formal schooling. This lack of education made her self-conscious throughout her life and helps demonstrate why she was so forceful in her later years in her advocation of female education. Her father was supportive of his daughter's learning, offering the family library as a place to begin their studies. In her youth, Abigail's mother taught the basics of arithmetic and writing. And Abigail's grandmother, a fierce woman with her own independent streak, chipped in on providing lessons, a fond memory that followed Abigail into adulthood. Not much is known about Abigail prior to her marriage to the second president, and it is primarily through her letters to her husband that we're able to glean as much as we do. And unlike Martha and George, John and Abigail were committed to keeping their correspondence intact for future generations. So it's no surprise that we begin to get a fuller sense of who Abigail is after her marriage in 1764. Though they became a powerhouse couple of the ages, it was not love at first sight. John was focused on becoming a lawyer and found Abigail lacking. Just a few short years later, however, the tides had turned and they were married in her parents' home in Weymouth, living together in a small farmhouse in Braintree while John pursued work as a lawyer and proceeded to have six children over 12 years. If you know much about the Adams family, or have listened to prior episodes of this podcast, then you know that John spent a majority of his time away from his family, leaving Abigail to run the household and raise the children pretty much on her own. This experience seemed to provide a sense of confidence in Abigail that might not have existed without John's absence. In charge of the farm, Abigail was tasked with making the financial decisions for the family, hoping that John would approve of her actions. She seemed to be a quick study because by the time her husband was serving in the Continental Congress, Abigail was ready to go into business for herself. This is part of the Abigail Adams story that I found infinitely fascinating, mainly because it's not something that gets a whole lot of attention in most online articles or journals about her. If you do a quick Google search, you'll learn about Adams' time overseas with her husband and as first lady, but running her own business? Say what? But that is exactly what she did. During the American Revolution, goods and materials were tight and everyone was trying to conserve. Certain products, think cloth, ribbon, lace, were not easily attainable due to the conflict with the British. In 1775, while John was serving in the Continental Congress, Abigail wrote requesting a bundle of 6,000 pins. Her decision to seek this particular item came from an astute observation on Abigail's part. Due to the wartime inflation, prices of pins had more than tripled. This presented an opportunity for Abigail. If John was able to procure the commodity, she was confident she could turn around and sell it at a large profit. Ensuring to maximize her profits, Abigail instructed her husband to send the acquired merchandise in a chest destined for the farm, all at the government's expense. Eager to get into the merchant game, Abigail grew impatient and let her frustrations be known in a letter to her husband, writing, quote, Not one pin is to be purchased for love nor money. I wish you could convey me a thousand by any friend traveling this way. End quote. John took the hint and made the necessary arrangements. Abigail's pins were on their way within a few days. This side hustle, to use today's language, proved rather profitable for Abigail, and she continued to act as a merchant even as her husband traveled overseas. International shipping was a potentially dangerous endeavor. There was always a risk the ship could be lost at sea or seized by the British Navy, both of which could prove disastrous for any merchandise. While they couldn't do anything to avoid the first risk, John and Abigail coordinated as best they could to avoid seizure by labeling the items sent to Massachusetts as intended for the family, not a business. With her finger on the pulse of what her neighbors wanted, Abigail placed bulk orders through her husband, who could buy items wholesale, further increasing her profit margin. John tried to contribute his thoughts for the business, suggesting he send smaller parcels more frequently with friends traveling across the Atlantic, hopefully further reducing the risk of detection. Abigail was not a fan of this plot for it meant John would pay a retail price and impact her bottom line. She kept this opinion to herself and let John figure it out and eventually he realized his idea was not the best and uninterested in business and struggling to act as the buyer, John suggested Abigail just deal with European suppliers directly. Abigail's time as a merchant was successful. Not only did she not lose money, but she was able to earn enough to pay the escalating Massachusetts taxes to fund the war and reinvest into other opportunities, such as land and bonds. Her husband came to appreciate her knack for finances so much that when she ended up stuck with some worthless paper notes, he chastised her for being imprudent. This setback proved to be minor, since Abigail still had enough cash on hand to attempt another investment, putting out loans. In the fall of 1781, Massachusetts went back to the hard money standard. This meant that debtors had to repay their creditors with the same gold or silver coins they received, not some random and worthless paper note. This made lending money and collecting interest on the payment a sound investment. When Abigail informed her husband she was getting into lending, he was not a fan and told her she should not proceed. She chose to ignore him. In today's society, this isn't really that big of a deal. I know plenty of strong and independent women out there who spend their money without a second thought. But when looking at this in the context of the time, her defiance proves pretty extraordinary. In the 18th century, women lost all rights once they got married through a legal practice known as coverture. Under coverture, all property and contracts were the responsibility of the husband, and he dictated investments and purchases. So for Abigail to get her husband's letter telling her to not lend money out and to do it anyways shows just how tenacious she was and how much confidence she had gained while running her own business during the revolution. Going even further than simply ignoring John's wishes, Abigail started to push back, disagreeing with his investment strategies, which consisted primarily of buying land. In Abigail's opinion, buying bonds was a much better investment During one of their many extended absences, a farm came up for sale that piqued John's interest. Abigail tried to entice her husband to come home by promising to give him the cash he needed to purchase the property. Now, technically, under the laws of the time, Abigail had absolutely no authority to make such an offer since any profits or savings she had belonged to her husband. But that didn't seem to matter to Abigail. When not running her merchant business and looking for ways to reinvest her profits, Abigail had a front row seat to some of the vital parts of the American Revolution, including the Battle of Bunker Hill. Awakened by cannon fire in the middle of the night, she and her son, John Quincy, made the trek to the mountaintops so they could watch it all unfold. Now, these are the kinds of stories in history that always baffle me. Think about it. She hears gunfire, well, cannon fire, and bombs, and decides, I need to see more. Who does that? Abigail also had the opportunity to meet the great general himself, one George Washington. To say she was impressed would be an understatement. Writing to her husband, Abigail said, quote, You had prepared me to entertain a favorable opinion of him, but I thought the one half was not told to me. Dignity with ease and complacency, the gentleman and soldier look agreeably blended in him, End quote. Since she had such a front row to the unfolding events, Abigail would often send reports to John. And though she was a woman and therefore largely ignored in the political arena, she did get the opportunity to dip her toes into the water in 1775, when the Massachusetts colony general court appointed her, Mercy Warren, and Hannah Winthrop to question their neighbors charged with being loyal to the British. In 1784, Abigail got the opportunity she had been waiting for, joining her husband overseas in Europe. The trek would allow her time with her husband and give her the experience she longed for, traveling abroad. After a rough, month-long trek, Abigail made landfall and began the journey towards London to meet up with her partner and best friend. Fully prepared to dislike the foes of the revolution, Abigail found herself pleasantly surprised at her new surroundings, though she was less than impressed with the women of the country. Europe was quite the experience for Abigail, who fell into the habit of comparing her new surroundings with what she was familiar with while residing in Massachusetts. One of the things she found most infuriating was the Parisian practice of having several servants who all performed distinct and separate functions. For Abigail's work ethic, the idea that the help would only perform one job when they had the time to do more rubbed her the wrong way. Eventually, though, Paris grew on Abigail, who grew very fond of the city of love. She returned to Massachusetts with John in 1788 and enjoyed a brief reprieve from politics, though the break did not last long. In 1789, Adams was elected as the first vice president of the United States and made preparations to head north. Abigail initially stayed behind in Braintree to tie up loose ends for the family farm. By May, John had grown impatient and asked Abigail to expedite her journey to New York. Over the course of the next eight years, Abigail would travel back and forth between New York and her home in Massachusetts, spending extended periods in Quincy. She wasn't overly fond of New York, finding their preachers lacking, and experienced consistent bouts of arthritis and other ailments that made traveling difficult. When she was in New York, the social calendar was quite full and Abigail was a bit overwhelmed. She was very strategic in returning social calls, though, often visiting people in the afternoon when they were more likely to be out. And though her husband was serving in the federal government, Abigail continued her investments, buying up securities and trying to turn a profit. She remained steadfast in her support of women's education as she aged. In 1794, when the vice president informed his wife of his plans to attend a commencement ceremony for an all girl school, Abigail could hardly contain her excitement. She wrote her husband to seek all of the details of the event and what he thought about the ceremony overall. Throughout her life, she pushed her husband on the importance of female education, writing at one time, you need not to be told how much female education is neglected nor how fashionable it has been to ridicule female learning, End quote. While education for women had made great strides since her youth, Abigail knew there was more to be done and prodded her dear friend, her husband, on the subject throughout their lives. Finally, in 1797, John Adams became president. While she could get away with long stays in Quincy as the wife of a vice president, she had no such leeway as first lady. Abigail would need to make arrangements for her relocation to Philadelphia to serve in her official role. However, her arrival was delayed and she missed her husband's inauguration, in part due to caring for her ailing mother-in-law. Adams had no family on hand to witness his ascent to the most powerful office in the country. Abigail spent her time as First Lady mainly in a protective role of her husband and as his confidant. A role she held throughout their marriage now became yet another tool opponents used to criticize her husband. Critics often derided her, calling her Mrs. President, and felt she yielded too much influence over John. While she was assuredly opinionated and unafraid to share her thoughts with her husband, Many forget that he was pretty independent and ornery in his own right, and not so easily persuaded. For example, during the XYZ affair, Abigail was fiercely supportive of going to war with France, but her husband had a different plan. Adams continued with the expected social calendar of a First Lady and hosted receptions and assisted those who were destitute, but she made no lasting contributions to the role and responsibilities of the First Lady. She was more interested in advocating for the things she believed in and supporting her family in their endeavors. Once it was clear that her husband would not be serving a second term, Abigail prepared for the return to Quincy and shut the door on their public life. Her husband had served enough in her eyes, and she looked forward to spending retirement with her dear friend. Finally, after what seemed like a lifetime of extended separations in service of their country, John and Abigail returned to Quincy, and enjoyed the longest stretch of living under one roof throughout their entire marriage. For 17 years, they worked their land, enjoyed their children and grandchildren, and followed politics from afar. She did not lose her forcefulness in her old age, requesting sternly her children uproot their lives and move closer to their parents. Abigail got her way, at least temporarily, and enjoyed being with her family for a few years. In 1818, Abigail contracted typhoid fever and deteriorated rapidly, passing away on October 28th. Her final words were, Do not grieve, my friend, my dearest friend. I am ready to go. And, John, it will not be long. She was 73. John would survive another eight years without his confidant, wife, and dearest friend, passing away on July 4th. 1826. Abigail Adams remains one of the most popular First Ladies in American history due to her perseverance, commitment to equality, and willingness to speak her mind. She is an example of the power of politics and how independence can brew confidence. And while she may not have made a contribution to the role of First Lady, she never shied away from her opinions and made sure that her husband and history remembered the ladies. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please consider a rate and review on either Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. Your support helps get the word out to fellow podcast lovers, and of course, it always gives me a smile. If you want to learn more about the source material, how to support the pod, or just say, hey girl, hey, you can visit the website at www.civicsandcoffee.com. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Civics and Coffee. If you want to hear more small snippets from American history, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining me, and I look forward to our next cup of coffee together.